Our scripture passage this morning is, once again, from Psalm 71, 12 through 16. We actually looked at all of Psalm 71 uh, earlier this year. But I thought in light of uh, certain current events nationally, internationally, that this might be an appropriate text for us to remember once again. Psalm 71, 12 through 16. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come to your word this morning, it's with the recognition once again that we need the work of your spirit. Uh, We need your Holy Spirit enabling us to not just read these words and not to have just a surface understanding, but to see how they speak to us about the life that we are to have in Christ, how they would instruct us and guide us even motivate us, move us. How would they keep, how they would keep returning us to the truths of the gospel, to how we're supposed to live our lives faithfully before you. Uh, We know that all of our earthly, worldly, fleshly effort will not achieve this. We know that we need your Holy Spirit working in us, uh, with us, moving upon our hearts and minds to be able to understand and beyond just understanding how to incorporate this in our lives. We trust you, Father, that you are the God whose spirit will work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to remember this morning that this particular psalm is the psalm of an old man, which is to say it speaks of a tested and mature faith. And as the global news and the national news are so disheartening, it's important for us to listen to those in the Bible whose lives faced the hard things in life, who had even hard things within their own nation. And to see, uh, in terms of what they say, how they trusted in God. Also, we see in this psalm and what is stated here, a reflection of two kingdoms that are in conflict the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. What this old man experiences is more fully seen by that greater revelation that we have in Christ. And so we do read this psalm in that way. Now, there's one main message that I want to focus on with respect to what we're looking at today. And I want to state it this way. Only in God can our minds and hearts possess genuine peace. Therefore, Hold fast to your hope in God. What I'm saying is that as we look at this psalm and as we analyze it, as we address what is said here, at the end of it all, I want us to be able to recognize that it's only in God that our minds and hearts in a world that is in so much conflict and turmoil, only in God can our minds and hearts possess genuine peace. 
But in order for that to be our true reality spiritually, we must hold fast and faithfully to our hope in God. Now, when we are speaking this way, we are speaking about God the Father, who has been revealed to us through Christ his Son. So our hope is in God through Christ and through the work which Christ did for us upon the cross. Now, with respect to the text, I want to pose three questions that arise out of this passage, but which are also answered within this passage as well. So I want to ask, first of all, what is interminable, that is, unrelenting, unceasing? Secondly, what is infallible, that is, what cannot fail us in this life? And then thirdly, what is immutable? What will never change that we can always rely upon? I want us to pose these three questions to this text that we're looking at today. So the first question, what is interminable? I want us to ask this question in verses 12 and 13. What do these two verses refer to that would speak of an unceasing and unending aspect of the human experience? So reading verses 12 and 13 again, the old man prays this way. Oh, God, be not far from me. Oh, my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. Well, in other words, what do these verses in particular point to with respect to the life and affairs of all human beings? And then what do they say about the human predicament? First, I want us to appreciate that they point to what is common to all people and what is unrelenting in all of the history of the world. These verses point to something that is common to all people and something that is absolutely unrelenting of the history of the world. All of the human race face the evils of a fallen human world in which the worst evils that are ever experienced are summed up in the phrase, man's inhumanity to his own fellow man. Might be a phrase that you learned in English in high school or something. Man's inhumanity to his own fellow man. Or in another way, we could say it this way, the evils that human beings do to one another. This is what is common to all people. This is what has been unrelenting in all of human history. And this is what is interminable. And what the old man is referring to in terms of what he's facing from those who accuse him of seek his hurt. But this is also to say from the biblical perspective that the world exists in a kingdom of darkness, of immoral and evil darkness ruled over by the prince of darkness. Now, with respect to that which is recent, the current international tragedy and debacle in Afghanistan. We see the Muslim Afghanistan people suffering under the Muslim Taliban's overthrow of their government as the U.S. withdrew its military engagement. There's a terrible irony here in that 99% of this country is Muslim. And what the Muslim Taliban is doing in its reign of murder and terror, they're doing for the most part against fellow Muslim citizens. Let me add just a personal perspective to this. Um, 
you know that Julie happens to be something of an intrepid evangelist. And so we have the plumber over on Friday, the Muslim plumber, the Muslim plumber that we've had here before, uh, who the first time uh, would give little regard to Julie because she was a woman, but who later began to pay her some attention when he found out that she had a career as a residential building inspector, so she knew quite a bit about plumbing, and she was going to keep him on his P's and Q's in terms of what he did. Well, he was back on Friday, and so just rather boldly, Julie said to him, well, what do you think about what's happening in Afghanistan? He goes, what do you mean? She says, the Taliban and all they're doing. He said, oh, the Taliban, they're not hurting anyone. The Taliban are peaceful people. Well, what's going on in the news reports, all the stories? Oh, that's all lies. What, what about what they're doing to women and children? All Muslims are peaceful people. Well, um, can you, you know, Julie had to come in and tell me this. And, and my thinking as I'm working on the message here is, is just simply this. It's part of the darkness, of the kingdom of darkness, that we can be perpetrating evil against other human beings and yet still stand in denial. And you might think about how in our own country much evil is perpetrated, but there's also much denial. We shouldn't be alarmed as Christians. This is substantially the history of the world. If we go back to Genesis 11, just prior to the judgment of the flood, Scripture says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. There it is, violence. Man's inhumanity to his fellow man, the destructive evil that human beings will perpetrate against one another. We also have to realize that the judgment of the flood did nothing to cure human beings of their evil and violent nature. The flood did not change fallen human nature, because after the flood, God still says in Genesis 8, 21, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is why Paul describes the human predicament in terms of the evils of human nature. Chapter 1 of Romans, verses 29 to 31, he describes human beings in a comprehensive sense this way. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Once again, this is what is common to all people. This is what has been the unrelenting history of the human race. This is what is interminable. And so in these two verses, uh, in the psalmist crying to God for help and deliverance from his accusers, those who are seeking his hurt, He's bearing witness to the interminable, unending, unrelenting evil of human nature. There is one thing you can always trust. Man's inhumanity to his fellow man is real. And what evil human beings are capable of and willing to do to one another will always outweigh and overshadow the good. That is to say, in the history of the human race, there is no scale of right and wrong where good deeds, the good deeds of the human race, roughly balance out the bad deeds of the human race. Rather, this is a fallen world, a fallen humanity, 
living in a kingdom of spiritual and moral darkness. Now, secondly, these verses then have a particular application to the Christian predicament. Our predicament is a kind of a subset of this larger human predicament. Jesus stated it this way, John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Most of the God, please help me prayers that we read in the Psalms come out of this kind of a context where the particular psalm writer is being hated and persecuted by those who are essentially of the world, by those who themselves hate God. Jesus is saying that the interminable condition that we face as believers is this posture of the world against us. Those who hate Christ are those who likewise hate us. Thus, we're hated by the world. We are hated by those who do not know the true and living God. We are unceasingly hated by those who have rejected the witness of God, both in the book of nature and in the book of Christ. And this is why Jesus also said, in the world, you will have tribulation. There is, always will be, unending and unrelenting opposition to our lives as Christians. Now, when I began the ministry in, in the latter part of the 70s, if I had made this bold statement, uh, just the way I've stated it now, many Christian leaders would have rebuked me and claimed I did not know what the United States was all about. This was a Christian nation, and it would essentially always be true and faithful to its Christian heritage. But four and a half decades later, the veil has come off the eyes of most Christian thinkers. The highest, very highest majority of colleges and universities in this country have ceased any pretense of being Christian friendly. We live in a country where traditional marriage, marriage as the Bible defines it, is hailed as an insult, an offense, a bigoted prejudice to all people in the pride community. We live in a country where in less than one decade, the transgender activism has overwhelmed the educational, psychological, medical, surgical, scientific, and legal establishments, which is why the majority medical ethical position among pediatricians today is the posture of supporting and enabling gender transition. It is why there's this philosophical shift in K-12 public education that is completely transaffirming. It's why kindergartner teachers are now being trained to spot and assist little boys who think they are girls, to live affirmingly with their self-identification. At the core of all of this is the kingdom of darkness working interminably to deepen man's inhumanity to his fellow man, where it is a delight to those who do evil that children would be the first targets, whether as babies still in their mother's wombs or kindergartners. Are emotionally confused. And in the educational, psychological, medical, surgical, scientific, and legal establishments, the Christian way of seeing the world of human beings is rejected as bigoted. And to work in these fields, 
Christians are increasingly facing the pressure to conform. But that is just to note that the kingdom of this world will always seek to compel the citizens of the kingdom of God to submit to its rule and to its reign. But Jesus also said, John 16, 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that leads us to the position taken by the psalmist, by this old man, in verse 14, to which we pose the question, but what is infallible? The psalmist writes, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. In response to the interminable opposition we face from the kingdom of the world, the psalmist points to what is infallible, and that is our hope, which is God. Our hope is in God. Now, we know this is what the old man means because he told us this back in verse 5 where he said, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. So let's think about hope. And then let's think about God and hope put together. First, with respect to hope, it's generally understood or used in a couple of ways. First, it can express a strong desire for certain things to happen or for a certain outcome, but without necessarily any strong confidence or good reasons to support the feeling or desire. For instance, uh, you have college you have students, high school students taking college exams, hoping that their test scores will be high enough for a good college acceptance or even a scholarship. But they're not at all sure, they're not at all certain, yet they hope. This kind of hope is most unlike the biblical usage. But secondly, hope can be a feeling or an expectation that a certain outcome will actually happen. That is, more than a desire for an outcome, there's an anticipation or an expectation or a believing that it will happen. In this case, a student might be asked how the exams went and say something like this. I think I did okay. My hopes are good. In this sense, there's a level of confidence based on a kind of evidence. But what if the evidence or reasons are bad? Then this kind of strong hope often plays out as a false hope. We've all met such people who've expressed a strong hope or an extreme confidence that something was going to happen, and it turned out to be false. I have encountered this a number of times in life. I, I think about early on in my high school career, high school teaching career, Bakersfield Christian, there was a young basketball athlete. And really, for the two years he played, he was the best. He was the most talented. Uh, he was very, very good. He often spoke of his hopes to play in the NBA, and he spoke with confidence. He also hoped that he would grow at least two more inches. Well, the truth is, he never even played at the next level. He never played college ball. He never grew those two inches. His hope was false. His hope was fueled by pride in his own abilities and a level of, let's say, conceit in which he really thought he was better than he actually was. His hope was fallible. Ultimately, all human hope that is based in oneself or in other human beings is fallible. Human hope 
in other human beings, even yourself, has no guarantees. People make covenants, contracts, promises all of the time. And they do so in good faith, yet they are broken. And they're not broken because people are always deceitful, but they're broken because people can't control the future. There is so much that people cannot control with respect to things that are going on and other people. And yet they make promises and covenants and contracts in that context. But the nature of hope radically changes when we think about God and hope together. What the psalmist is talking about is a hope that is anchored to God. And therefore, his hope is anchored to the attributes of God. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is covenantally committed to his people. And God has made promises to his people, to those who fear his name, to those who are true believers. God is infallible. God does not fail. God does not fail to keep any of all of his commitments. Now, this makes biblical hope something far beyond any kind of worldly hope. Because it's grounded in what is true. God actually exists. And this is the infallible nature of this old man's hope. He has a biblical hope which is a way of looking at the world realistically, not with some kind of blind optimism. It is a way of looking at the human predicament and the Christian predicament in light of what we know about God. It is being able to see and then to feel the confidence that God will do what he promises in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so while it's true that the kingdom of this world will keep on opposing us, God remains in sovereign control over all things. And God is working out the good of his kingdom, the, the kingdom of his son, for our own highest good. And this is why we have an infallible hope. This hope will not fail us. This is why. Even in the face of opposition, the old man could keep on praising and worshiping God. And so can we. We can hope continually because we have an infallible hope in Christ. And then in verses 15 and 16, we pose this question. What is Immutable. What the old man mentions in verses 15 and 16 is the righteousness of God. In fact, this is the attribute that he mentions more than any other, the attribute of God that he points out more than any other in this psalm. He mentioned God's righteousness in verse 2, verse 19, verse 24, as well as 15 and 16. And even when the English Standard Version translation Speaks, speaks of righteous acts or righteous help, as it does respectively in verse 15 or verse 24. The Hebrew original is simply righteousness, which is how the majority of the translations translate it. 
clearly this is the great theme of God that the old man turns to. In a world that is evil and displays the interminable and unrelenting unrighteousness of human beings toward each other, in a world where God's own people suffer the hatred that comes from the unrighteousness of the kingdom of darkness, this is what is immutable. The righteousness of God. It is unchanging and unchangeable. And the New Testament opens up to us that the foundation of our lives in terms of our salvation is found in the righteousness of God. So what is it? What is God's righteousness? Well, God's righteousness is essentially God being truly good and fully just in all of who he is and in all of what he does. Uh, it means that God is morally perfect and that God has no moral deficiency at all. And it also means that because God is righteous, he's always giving to his creatures exactly what their works and their deeds deserve. But that then presents a problem. This is a fallen world in which the Bible says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, 10 to 12. So if God is righteous and we are not, if God gives to every creature exactly what his works and deeds deserve, and if we human, human beings do not do what is good, then we're lost. We're condemned. We are on the wrong side of God's righteousness. But God's kingdom has an answer. Paul presents that answer at the beginning of the book of Romans. Uh, verses 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Uh, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel of the Son of God, God has revealed his power to save everyone who believes in the Son and in the atoning work of the cross. For there on the cross, God laid upon him, his son, the iniquity of us all. There Christ bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, as he was smitten and afflicted by God, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, punished by God in order to bring us peace, so that through the sin-bearing wounds received on the cross of Calvary, we are healed spiritually and morally. Because on the cross, God was making the great transaction, the great exchange. God was counting the sinner to be righteous as Christ bore the sinner's sin. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 in verse 11, the righteous one, my servant, shall make the many 
to be accounted righteous as he shall bear their iniquities. So here is the answer simply stated. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By faith, by trust, by placing all of our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is credited to us by God as a free gift that brings us to everlasting life. Now, this is why the theme of this old man is the righteousness of God. God is immutably righteous, and he has saved us by giving us this righteousness by faith in his son. And that which God has given, he does not take away. Not when it is grounded in the work of his son. For we are promised in scripture, in Romans 8, 38, 39, the infallible hope based upon the immutable righteousness of God to keep all of his promises. For Paul says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in response, we note this, that God's method of salvation, the gift of his righteousness, strips us of any and all glorying in ourselves. Stephen Sharnock, the great writer on the existence and attributes of God, makes that important insight. Being gifted righteousness strips us in every way from ever glorying in ourselves. And so in verse 16, the old man says this, I will remind them, or I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. It is God's own immutable righteousness that is worthy to be mentioned. No other righteousness is to be mentioned at all. It is this righteousness that saves us. It is this righteousness that's given to us through the work of Christ, coming to us by grace through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of our works, so that no one may boast, for we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So, in conclusion, we began by reminding ourselves that this is the psalm of an old man. The psalm here speaks of a tested and mature faith. In a world where there is interminable human evil perpetrated by human beings against one another, it's important for us to listen to those in the Bible who faced this same kind of human evil in their own lives, in their own lifetimes, even from their own fellow citizens in Israel. We are to see how and why they trusted in God, to see in God their infallible hope, whose righteousness is their salvation, and whose righteousness will never change. Of all of the hymns ever written that strongly 
state these truths. Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress Is Our God is certainly among the best. Reading his words, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dust, ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What then have we learned from this passage? Namely this, that only in God can our minds and hearts ever possess genuine peace in a world of unrelenting evil. Therefore, we need to hold fast to our hope, to our infallible hope in God, who has established us in our salvation by his own immutable righteousness, which he's given to us in Christ. Let us hold fast to our hope, our anchor, who is Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, uh, may we pray as Luther sang and prayed. May we be so willing to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, to know the body they may kill, but your truth abideth still, and that your kingdom, not the kingdom of this world, your kingdom, abides forever. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his word. Thank you for the testimony of this old saint. May our faith be strong. May our hope in Christ always carry us through such days as these. In Jesus' name, amen.